Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast. On this podcast, we're going to explore the many facets of the disease of obesity. I'm Mark Labriola, and in this episode, Dr. Nicholas Pennings interviews Dr. Eduardo Sanchez, the keynote speaker from Obesity Medicine 2019, about the connection between obesity and heart disease. This podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, this is Dr. Nick Pennings, a Chair of Family Medicine at the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine and Executive Director of Clinical Education at the Obesity Medicine Association. And I'm here with Dr. Eduardo Sanchez, who serves as the Chief Medical Officer of the Center for Health Metrics and Evaluation of the American Heart Association. Dr. Sanchez is also a keynote speaker here at the OMA conference. Uh, speaking on applying chronic care model for prevention and management uh, of obesity. Thank you for being here, Dr. Sanchez. Pleased to be here. So I wanted to start with just getting your thoughts on the role of ob- that obesity has played in the risk of heart disease. Well, I'm a big disciple of the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7. Life Simple 7 is our definition of um, cardiovascular health. Um, And it's seven factors, smoking, healthy eating, physical activity, weight, blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose, weight, obesity is one of those. So the simple answer is um, from the Heart Association's perspective, obesity is absolutely among the cardiovascular risk factors that we should assess and address. Well, that's great because a lot of those simple seven components are also important part of obesity treatment. And that is something that we focus on in identifying uh, different disease processes associated with with obesity and then intervening and trying to reverse as much of that disease process as possible. What role do you see for the future treatment of obesity as a treatment for cardiovascular disease? Well, now that we have all agreed that obesity is a disease, um, I think it's time to think about how do we treat um, and reverse that disease if possible. Um, In my time, I'm a family physician by training. Um, In my time, uh, I took care of people with high blood pressure and was able to take them off of medications. I took care of people with type 2 diabetes and was able to get them off of medications. Um, and while we may not be talking about people on medications, how we reverse um, obesity is critically important on a patient-by-patient patient basis and in ways that make sense. Certainly addressing nutrition, what we're eating and how much of it, Um, And physical activity, how much we're doing and with what intensity, are two things that we ought to be talking to all of our patients about, never mind where their BMI is or is not. Um, And so it is very much the way the American Heart Association is thinking about um, cardiovascular disease risk management. If we can do the things that uh, we can do to um, address and reverse obesity, there's a good chance that that will have a downstream positive effect on the likelihood of a person developing prediabetes or diabetes, the likelihood of a person needing to be on lipid-lowering agents to address what would put them at higher risk if they were uh, people with obesity. Um, And then lastly, uh, um, 
uh, as it relates to uh, high blood pressure. Um, high blood pressure is going to be better at um, lower weight, but also if one is eating healthfully and being physically active, that's the holy grail for all of those diseases, obesity, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. Absolutely. Uh, that. That's right on target. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing to help people get off of medications. As a clinician, well, first and foremost, I was um, the patient's champion. Uh, so, so often um, what we hear or what we are led to believe is that kind of patient can't dot, dot, dot. And I just refused to accept that any kind of patient couldn't go from where they were to a better place. And so much of that um, I've learned subsequently, whether it's about education in school settings, whether it's about sports in athletic settings, or about um, medical conditions in clinical settings, is about giving people the sense, individuals, the sense that they can do it, and then backing that up with the kind of um, support they need and the tools that will get them there. And so, so much was about applying the specific technical knowledge on the one hand, but really it was about um, being a champion for each of my patients and just helping them along. Um, if they stumbled, Oh, well, um, get up and let's get going again. Um, and if they were doing fantastic things, sometimes um, small measures of fantastic things, um, an attaboy or an girl went a long, long way. Absolutely. You want to be the champion for your patients. And I, too, found uh, that patients want, did not want to be on medications. They wanted to get off of medications. Uh, and very often when they would ask me about when they start a blood pressure medication, They'd ask me, am I going to be on this for the rest of my life? And my old answer used to be, well, you probably, most people who start on a medication end up staying on a medication. And one of the things I found as an obesity medicine specialist is as I was helping people lose weight and adopt a healthy lifestyle, that their weight was, as their weight was going down, I was able to reduce medications. In fact, I find that's a hard thing even within the medical profession is to stop a medication. For most physicians, they're very comfortable with adding, but very uncomfortable with taking away medications. Any thoughts on that and how do we guide our, our colleagues to, to help them with that? I think we got to change that. I, I think that part and parcel with the, um, so it's interesting, the, the one thing that we are challenged with adding um, are the lifestyle recommendations that should be part of any discussion with any patient. Um, if we could get patients to not smoke, um, to move even a little bit more and to um, uh, adjust some of how they eat, we could begin um, moving them along that trajectory uh, without necessarily adding a new expensive um, copay associated medication. So we have work to do on two fronts. One, getting comfortable with adding lifestyle. And then two, getting comfortable with monitoring what's going on with our patients and realizing that there are times where even if it's just a test, um, a drug holiday could make some sense because what you may find is that drug isn't adding value anymore. Let's eliminate it. Right. Looking for those opportunities to do that. And and doing lifestyle in a meaningful way. For some, it's just sort of a box to check that, well, I discussed lifestyle, let's move on to the real treatment, which is the medication, and, and recognizing that lifestyle can be a very effective tool uh, and is the cornerstone of uh, treatment for all conditions, but we sort of gloss over it, or at least many of our colleagues gloss over it. 
Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's uh, it, it's not because they're paying attention to the science, because there's plenty of studies out there that are beginning to show us. I mentioned Life Simple 7 before. There is a cottage industry of Life Simple 7 studies um, around a variety of things, some in persons who already have diagnosed conditions. And a couple of studies that come to mind are in individuals who have already had a stroke, how well you are doing on Life Simple 7, and admittedly, um, um, some of those require some treatment with medications, but three of those are absolutely about lifestyle. The degree to which you're doing well on Life Simple 7 is a uh, prognostic predictor uh, in a positive way. So the higher your score, the better off you're going to be. So whether you are um, naive to any disease, that is, you are just a healthy person, Life Simple 7 makes sense to continue being that healthy person. But if you are in any part of the continuum of disease, um, however we want to define that, um, the lifestyle parts of Life Simple 7 play a role in improving the health of our patients. And I, again, I think sometimes we forget that, whether it's heart failure, obesity, um, can, uh, um, atrial fibrillation, stroke, post-MI, Getting right on Life Simple 7 has a positive effect on your cardiovascular health. And at the end of the day, um, heart disease and stroke are still the number one and number five killers of people in the United States. Those numbers are going down. A recent study showed that the, um, the number of um, folks with myocardial infarctions showing up in emergency rooms has gone down almost 40% in the last 20 years. I think that's a sign that Despite everything I've said, maybe we're doing a little bit better on lifestyle modification and certainly doing better overall on cardiovascular risk management and modification. In some studies, higher weight categories are associated with better outcomes for cardiovascular disease, sometimes referred to as the obesity paradox. What are your thoughts about this data and how do you interpret that data? So um, the data probably is what the data is, uh, and what I would say is that we probably need to do some degree of sub-analysis and better understand how each of the different factors um, uh, that are Life Simple 7, and maybe there's a handful of others, how they correlate. Because I, I, I think that uh, when we just focus on one thing and not pay attention to perhaps that person is more fit than they might have been otherwise, perhaps that person um, had uh, um, the other cardiovascular risk factors managed. Um, and then just this morning, I heard a very interesting idea, I'm not a basic science person, that um, the origins of... Um, of uh, um, adipose uh, cells um, is the same origin as heart cells and that somehow or other there may be a um, as of yet unrecognized cardioprotective effect when you have an event. So, so that's the other thing is that if we're measuring this based on um, whether people survive bad things or not, that's important. Um, but we might want to do some sub-analysis to see if the incidence of those bad things that they're protected from um, are different in two different populations. That was very interesting how adipose stem cells may play some role in, in uh, helping heart disease. Yeah, but but I think that um, the 
the presenter said this doesn't mean that we should be encouraging people to put on more weight. And my analysis of some of this data also is that some of that protective or paradoxical effect begins to go away when you shift from um, milder uh, levels of obesity to more severe obesity. And at the severe obesity levels, um, all of that protection um, is negated by the negative effects of carrying that much weight and having that much adiposity. Right. Typically that's found in overweight and class one categories and not beyond that. That's right. We've seen a rise in obesity in our children. How do you see this impacting the future of heart disease in the United States? Um, I'm very, very worried. And in fact, uh, um, earlier today, I mentioned that um, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, it may be, I'll use um, qualifying language because I don't want to give away what might be an embargoed secret. It may be that a report is going to show that the health of people who are millennials uh, at this stage of their lives is less healthy than um older generations were at that same stage of life. That can't be a good thing. Um, I think it reminds us that we need to double down on, um, on health promotion and we need to double down on um, disease prevention and on cardiovascular risk management. It also reminds us that we need to take that back as far as we possibly can, um, and it's never too early to get started. Uh, whether that's um, making sure that um, mo potential mothers are healthy before they come become pregnant, that they're healthy, and, and fathers probably too, and that mothers stay healthy during pregnancy, and that babies um, are um, offered um, the right mix of healthful nurturing, feeding, et cetera. And then in schools, um, children have the opportunity to be physically active, eat healthy foods, both of which are important for academic performance. Um, so there's no harm in doing that. Um, it probably reminds us that we are not doing that as well as we could. We're doing less of it now than maybe some of us who have gray hair, no hair, or dyed hair um, when we were kids and need to go back to, that's one place we're going back to recess every day, PE every day. Maybe the food could be a little bit healthier than when some of us were younger, um, but that's the message. Um, scary. Scary. Um, we need to do something about it. Yeah, scary, especially when we see reports of the potential life expectancy of our children being less than than those a lot those who are older now. Absolutely, and 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 if indeed their life expectancy isn't lower, the burden of disease is going to come sooner, um, and um, the cost, not even to society, the cost to an individual to be labeled as having a disease that has stigma associated regardless what the disease is. Um, and then the cost, just in terms of family relationships and your ability to get your work done effectively, all of those things I think are sometimes underestimated and critically important. And the impact on quality of life is a huge factor as well. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to say that if you've got a, um, any, any of the cardiometabolic diseases um, that you can't have a high quality of life. But I'd like to think that all of us would agree that um, not having a disease, uh, probably better than having a disease. As a family physician, what role do you see family physicians and other primary care providers playing in the treatment of obesity? 
I love that question because um, what we keep learning as we look at uh, what we think of as being uh, very challenging um, health conditions, um, diseases that need to be treated, what we find over and over and over again, whether it's high cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, congestive heart failure, um, diabetes, I'm going to put obesity on that list. Primary care is primary because that's where people go. That's where people present early in whatever it is that's going on. That's where people present um, uh, for prevention. No one goes to a cardiologist who's in perfectly good health. Um, you go to a cardiologist generally. Um, I'll correct that. You go to a cardiologist when something um, is not going quite right. People don't go to the endocrinologist um, when they are perfectly healthy human beings. Um, and so family physicians are the place where perfectly healthy human beings should be seen because perfectly healthy human beings need to be regularly assessed for what might be a detectable early disease. Cancer would be in that category. Um, that's places where they can get um, the kinds of um, preventive treatment that's going to keep them from getting bad things vaccines fall into that category and it's also the place where the opportunity while someone is there for those things to discuss um, cardiometabolic health eating healthy being physically active not smoking as um, very important lifelong steps to um, prevent delay or mitigate what will be the downstream consequences that might manifest as obesity high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, or a combination of the four. That's great. How effective are medical practice care models for treating chronic diseases, and how should they change to more effectively handle chronic diseases like obesity? That is a really, really astute question, because I, I think that um, we are collectively getting to the point that um, more science about pathophysiology, more science about um, disease is not what we need. What we really need is more science about how to translate the knowledge into action and how to translate that effectively. Um, there are some models out there um, around, obviously, the Wagner chronic care model is one model to have a look at. It doesn't have the kind of specificity, I think, that would be really, really valuable. But I'm I'm finding, I am finding um, tools and programs. Um, uh, the uh, American Medical Association has developed a MAP framework for taking care of high blood pressure. MAP stands for measure accurately, act quickly, um, partner with patients. Um, and it may be that we can borrow from already existing programs um, and perhaps the OMA in addition to an algorithm, uh, which is critically important to guide um, the, the, the clinical decisions that need to be made, um, can add to what was part of um, this spring-summer summit um, in workshops and begin putting together the practice guides. What do you need? You probably need what we're learning out there in general, um, a clinical champion on site. Um, you need to uh, make sure that you are measuring the things that should be measured, that you are reviewing the things that you're measuring and seeing if the actions you're taking to maybe address what you're measuring are making a difference. Um, that you are uh, using a team-based approach to do it so that the 
physician or the nurse practitioner or the PA is not carrying 95% of the load of work when it can be um, distributed. Um, part of that probably takes physicians like you and I to also have a little bit of an attitude adjustment about what we ought to be doing and more importantly what others can and should be doing in our practices. Um, and it requires um, all of that um, in a quality improvement framework that um, is regularly looked at regularly tweaked and is about ultimately providing evidence-based care in the most effective way. And I think your simple seven framework is a good framework for monitoring progress and, and uh, making sure the team is looking at that whole patient and looking at the whole picture and looking at the important things. We get a lot of metrics from insurance companies that say you should follow this result or that result, but I think that simple seven is a better framework around which we can monitor our patients and monitor their progress and, and, and assess as well as assess their current status. Well, I would be so conflicted if I just said I totally agree, but I'm going to totally agree with you. Um, I do think that Life Simple 7 affords us the opportunity to um, 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 have a fixed set of things that we're tracking. Um, the evidence, um, very compelling evidence, that in the case of persons with type 2 diabetes, when you get their diabetes um, controlled, their lipids controlled, and their blood pressure controlled, the degree of life-saving, reducing the likelihood of an adverse cardiac event is very, very low compared to uh, the, the risk. Yeah, the risk is low compared to those where only one of those three are adequately controlled. Um, our colleagues and our clinical teams know how to do the control of everything. Um, we just haven't figured out how to package it and deliver it effectively, comprehensively, consistently. That's what we need to do. Yes, integrating those concepts into one. So where can our listeners find out more about Life Simple Sevens? Sure. Um, so the American Heart Association's website is um, heart.org, H-E-A-R-T.org. Uh, and if you search um, uh, Life Simple 7, uh, you will find it. And if you search... Uh, um, if you search, one other important thing to search is the uh, 2019 prevention guidelines. The 2019 prevention guidelines are a compendium. It captures um, the recommendations for clinicians to address the Life Simple 7 based on the science to date. Well, thank you very much for being here. It was a pleasure talking to you about these interesting topics. Oh, pleased to participate. Anything that can move the needle forward um, is a good thing for me. Thank you, Dr. Pennings and Sanchez. For more information about Obesity Medicine podcasts and other resources from the clinical leader in obesity medicine, please visit obesitymedicine.org slash podcasts. The views expressed in this podcast episode are those of the show hosts and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please check back next month for another episode of Obesity, a Disease. Have a great day.